Welcome to the Global Report podcast, a discussion on current events and global matters. I'm your host, Morgan DeWicke, and my co-host, Professor William Lawrence, is joining me today from Tunisia. In this episode, we discuss the Red Sea crisis, the Houthis in Yemen, and why they are targeting global shipping. To stay up to date on future episodes, visit globalreportpodcast.com. Okay, this is the third episode of the Global Report, um, and uh, we're here to discuss the Red Sea uh, crisis uh, or Red Sea uh, conflict uh, that um, has been overshadowed uh, during uh, much of the events since October 7th by the conflict in Gaza, what's going on in the West Bank, what's going on at the Lebanese border, and Syria and Iraq. And uh, what's what's happened in the Red Sea is unprecedented. It's 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 worrying a lot of people that focus in the maritime affairs. It's having um, significant impacts on the global economy. It seems to have its own dynamics in a certain respect, which can outlast um, the the war. Um, and it's 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 uh, creating um, examples that could affect every maritime choke point in the world in in, in frightening ways. So uh, there's a lot to discuss here, and we're at day fifty of the. Uh, the Red Sea crisis, and we're going to be getting into various aspects of this problem: political, geopolitical, economic. Uh, uh, well, probably you'll, insurance. You know, like all the things that go into you know how it affects shipping and how shipping decisions are made and how governments uh, re- respond. I can answer questions uh, about the uh, internal politics of Yemen and how it led us to the situation. Um, and uh, certainly you can bring in uh, your maritime expertise and understanding of global shipping, global transportation, and, uh, and oceans affairs. So um, with that, let's uh, get right in it. Yeah. So I think there's really this convergence going on um, internationally with a, a lot of different issues. Um, most listeners are probably familiar with the disruptions to shipping and the supply chain crisis during covid uh, in which you saw the cost of your goods skyrocket exponentially. They were taking weeks, months uh, to get to you as a result of those supply chain disruptions. Uh, and really what that brought to the forefront was this concept of choke points uh, or you know, weaknesses uh, that could be penetrated in supply chains, whether from a, just a market standpoint, right, uh, which is what COVID was, um, in this case, uh, for those unaware, the Red Sea crisis is, is really, it's a man-made um, crisis, right? We have a rebel group in Yemen named the Houthis, um, really, and we'll discuss it, um, taking several angles as to why they're disrupting shipping. Uh, they are situated right on the Bab el-Mendib Strait, which is one of a half dozen choke points uh, for global shipping, where a significant portion, double digits portion of global shipping passes through. And so uh, we, we have to take great care and consideration uh, as to how to react to such a situation. And so based on your opinion, Bill, um, why do you think the Houthis decided really to start tripping up global trade? Um, the Houthis. Uh are to some degree Iran on steroids. You know, if you look yep. at their flag and their motto, it's all about, um, you know, killing Americans and Israelis. And they've framed in 20 years of conflict in Yemen, everything is a fight against the Americans and the Brits when they're usually absent in these conflicts entirely or mostly. Um, and so it's, 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 um, it was a gift to them uh, domestically and internationally. 
uh, Gaza because then they could say we're going to like start hitting everybody that we can hit and we're going to say that we're defending the Gazans when in fact it really has almost nothing to do with the Gazans except that they say it does. And there's a lot of sympathy there in the world because there's a lot of sympathy for the Palestinians. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, you know, it didn't start after October 7th. It started uh, um, quite a bit later. Um, and it uh, um, uh, has its own dynamics. It has its own flows and, and ups and downs uh, and cycles. And um, But it's been a um, really scary evolution um, uh, in this part of the world. Uh, I should mention that I'm doing this from Tunisia. And when I think about the Mediterranean, I think about the Mediterranean as a big sort of egg on its side, right? Because that's sort of the general shape of it. But we all forget, and I was just looking at a map yesterday, that there's a choke point between Tunisia and Italy. And it's quite mm -hmm. small, which is why a lot of those migrants crossing the Med leave from Tunisia and they're on Italian islands in, in a relatively short period. And so we've got choke points in Gibraltar, this choke point in the mid-Med that no one ever talks about, you know, the, the Suez Canal choke point, Babel Mended, uh, the, you know, the various ones in the Indian Ocean and around the South China Sea and all that. Um, and we're talking about um, something we've never seen before. We've had piracy for centuries, but we haven't seen a really nasty group go after a large percentage of the ships going through on it. Like we've never seen this. We had blockades in the past. We've had various things that happened uh, as part of warfare, but we've never really seen uh, what you amounts to a terrorist group say, we get to stop the entirety of global shipping. And 20% of what the global container ships go through, <clears throat> Bowman uh, Streets and the Suez Canal, uh, I think about 12% of global commerce. I mean, as your dad often says, you know, everything you buy, you don't even realize, you know, was on a boat at some right, point. Right. And there's a good chance it was on a boat going through this area, uh, particularly if you're on the East Coast of the U.S. Um, uh, and then as with globalization, you know, like cars, I, don't, I forget the number, but, you know, you might have 10,000 things in a car and they might be coming from 80 different countries or something. And in fact, car manufacturing is back and forth things. So, you know, over the Canadian U.S. Mexican border. There are bits and parts of car manufacturing going back and forth yeah. across. But but then a lot of this is global too. And so, uh, do you remember during COVID when um, suddenly certain cars couldn't be made that had a certain blue color because there's only one country, Ukraine, um, and the Ukraine war started that produces that blue. And so you know, there are just these weird things you don't realize until you understand how global chains work that um, that can be disrupted uh, quite easily. Um, and, uh, and so the Red Sea, uh, is not only a disaster in the making, but it's a bad example, uh, we hope isn't followed. And that's one of the reasons the U S is so, um, assiduously, um, defending. I should probably add one point here, which is, um, the main issue in the Gulf of Aden, uh, Horn of Africa, and even into the, um, Arabian slash Persian Gulf, um, in recent years has been um, either the Iranians hitting things, right, or piracy. And yep. now we have a new uh, a new um, evolution here, which is it's possible we're entering a world where almost any terrorist group won't just have a land set of land goals, but might have a set of sea goals um, yeah, that, I think uh, that focus on these choke points. This particular case is unique in the sense that we really haven't seen sans piracy, this attempt to disrupt the global economy 
on this type of scale. Um, and for very broad reasons, right? This isn't yeah. targeted. This initially was sort of uh, suggested that it was going to be focused upon countering uh, or pro applying pressure to Israeli interests in shipping passing through, uh, which we saw with the seizure uh, by Houthi rebels of the Galaxy Leader, a Bahamas flagged car carrier back in November. That was sort of the spark that lit this whole thing off. Um, and so I think what's allowed the Houthis to do this is there's really nothing to lose. They're coming off sort of this protracted conflict with the Yemeni government, with the Saudis. Um, we can't forget that they've been at war now for quite a long time, and yet they've persisted. Uh, they're not in complete control of the government, but they control quite a lot of the territory. And so the pieces of the puzzle just kind of came together on a silver platter for them. And they've seized this opportunity, really what seems initially as a political move, right? As you mentioned, there's a lot of sympathy in Yemen for the Palestinian cause. Uh, and the Houthis are not a popular group by any means in Yemen. Um, their version of life, their version of how society should operate is much more repressive than what the Yemeni government has to offer. I think a lot of people in Yemen are dissatisfied with that sort of worldview. But at the same time, uh, now leveraging this opportunity sort of as the uh, anti-West, anti-Israel uh, purveyor, right, uh, of justice, the Houthis are sort of trying to build political clout within Yemen. Um, do you see this as providing them with long-term political clout? Or do you think, should something happen to their ability to disrupt shipping, that this will sort of wane off and they'll, and they'll lose power? Could go either way. Uh, let me also say that there's a pattern here. Um, throughout the Muslim world in particular, that's 50 countries um, or uh, uh, and beyond uh, when it comes to um, certain moves towards autocracy. And often the choices that people have is either corrupt, looser autocracy or ideological, nasty autocracy. And some people are often willing to put up with corruption, not to have fundamentalism, right, or, or, or sort of nasty conservative autocracy. And some people are willing to put up with uh, nasty conservative religious, you know, autocracies so that they don't have corruption. And, and, it, and it's hard for a lot of these countries to um, not only get rid of both the corruption and the extremism, uh, um, but it's hard even these days to say that democracies are better because there's so much you know, corruption creeping into democracies and so much extreme ideologies creeping into democracies and then so much misinformation, disinformation and sort of populist stuff that that it's just um, really hard for populations to know that. Uh, and a lot of these countries have had short experiments with democracy that haven't necessarily worked out, you know, to know that corruption will go away and uh, populist autocracy will not deliver. 
you know, and, 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 you know, the, the, the Athenians in their own way had it right, you know, that if you give everybody a voice and you have representations, you know, as democracy evolved, um, you will have less of all those bad things. And we, and we know it. there's plenty of evidence. It's about, you know, 80 decent democracies in the world out of 190 countries. And they, um, they just do better. They don't fight each other as much. They have more prosperity. Uh, your citizens have a role in decision-making, you know, and so all that's um, at play. Now, when it comes to Yemen, um, the Houthis control the capital. The Houthis are battle-hardened from 20 years of war. The Houthis um, are uh, uh, um, willing to starve themselves and starve their population if it means scoring geopolitical points against the international system. Um, there's another piece, and I taught a whole class on Yemen, it, tribes and history and, and terrorism um, in the intelligence community some years ago. And, and I had to look at the whole Yemeni history. And there's a piece of history that was never really well explained, which is that big parts of southwestern um, Saudi Arabia were part of Yemen just 100 years ago, mm. that they were emirates, you know, and all that went back yep. to, you know. Persian empires and stuff. And so when the Houthis attack Southwestern Saudi Arabia, they're not just hitting Saudi Arabia, they're hitting what used to be theirs. And there are big affinities across the Saudi border, which is a new border. Uh, so if, if you know anything about the history of borders and what that causes, that's another one of those problematic borders. It's not just yep. Houthis hitting South and hitting North. And then what and other people also forget when it comes to Yemen is we had decades of civil war between North and South Yemen, uh, South being the more Marxist, you know, and the North being the more whatever isn't Marxist, uh, but not quite you know, capital democratic. And um, they never really sorted that out. And so if the, the, the current political situation and, in Yemen, it's quite complicated because in the South, you have separatists who, you know, derive from those Marxists. You've got Muslim Brotherhood. You've got this other sort of corrupt secular crowd that did the Arab Spring and were trying to bring it out of democracy. And then you have in the North, um, these badass um, Houthis, you have various terrorist groups and you have um, people who are increasingly resentful of what they got, you know, getting back to what you said. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, the Americans have been pushing hard for some years now to get the Saudis to stop killing Houthi civilians with American weapons in large numbers uh, and to get a peace deal that brings the Houthis into um, some sort of political arrangement where they get the old north, which was the north when we had north Yemen and south Yemen, and, and the, um, the UN-recognized government, which is weaker and controls less, uh, gets the south. Um, and so uh, all of this um, has been upset by the October 7, uh, post October 7 war, because um, uh, not only are the Houthis attacking international shipping, not only is the peace deal uh, that we helped force between not only the North and South of Yemen, but the Saudis and the Houthis um, uh, slowly unraveling, uh, but we could have you know, we have the potential here of, of the of the, the Gaza war uh, becoming several fronts mm. um, uh, through the region. Uh, you know, right now we have increased activity in Syria and Iraq, 85 American hits in those countries, and it's going to go on for days. Who knows what that's going to lead to? And the either, either the Houthi civil war breaking out again or the Saudi Houthi war breaking out again. 
or the American-British protect international shipping conflict uh, heating up in a big way. And um, that's three fronts just in Yemen. So yeah. uh, things think, bode, bode badly I, right now for, uh, for, for uh, um, solving this problem quickly. Um, so to finish answering your question, um, the only way this goes away if the, is if the Houthis get part of what they want. But then everybody else do like so. How do why do wars end? Either everyone gets exhausted, right, or they make a deal in which people get enough of what they want that it looks better to them than uh, than continuing the war. So, you know, unfortunately, right, if if you're going to stop what's going on in the Red Sea, you have to do things like let the Houthis control their territory, you know, right. and, and and not be attacked. Uh, uh, and that's uh, that's tricky diplomacy and negotiations. Yeah, I hate to draw a direct comparison, but I see many parallels here to what went on in Cuba uh, in the 50s and 60s. Um, this is almost like a, a Castro-like situation where you have a real thorn uh, for the United States, but it's a legitimate thorn. It's an increasingly legitimate thorn um, that either has to be dealt with or needs to be recognized. Um, yeah. And I think... The Houthis are here to stay, it seems like, and, and that this is going to be a long-term thing that we're not just going to wish away. Um, I think it's increasingly difficult in the perspective for the United States and its allies um, because the Houthis are so intertwined and supported by Iran. Um, this is a great chess piece for the Iranians to counter the U.S., to pressure the U.S., to pressure Western interests. Um, it's definitely an extension of what we've been seeing, kind of this tit-for-tat in merchant shipping with the seizure of merchant vessels um, that are passing through the Straits of Hormuz off Iran, um, which has been going on for quite a long time. And I think really the result of the U.S. withdrawal from the Iran deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action that was undertaken by the Obama administration and pulled by President Trump, really with heavy pressure from the Israel lobby in the United States and Bibi Netanyahu, who was basically against the deal from day one. Well, we're sort of uh, reap what you sow uh, is sort of what we're dealing with here, right? We we basically stuck our our middle finger out to the Iranians and said, "Well, poohoo, we're not sticking to the sticking to our word." Um, and so now they've they've been applying pressure, um, and the U.S. and its allies sort of need to decide what the long term play here is. I think. Um, and so, what do you can think? I, we can, can I can I um, from the can U.S. I draw side? An even, can I yeah. draw an even more controversial parallel? Sure. Do you know how the Israelis keep saying that the only way to get our hostages out is just hit, hit, hit harder? And if we kill someone in the way, we'll still get them out because we're hitting hard. And then right. every time we get hostages out, it's because the war stopped and it got negotiated. We have right. a similar situation with the Iran deal, right? And then, and all this, and, and, and it relates to the Houthi uh, situation too, which is that um, Iran only did good things that were good for the global community and its own re-entry into it and it becoming like a sort of citizen, you know, global citizen nation when there was a peace deal. 
uh, both during the negotiation and after the deal got enacted. And but we have this whole chorus of people, including Netanyahu, including a lot of people in Congress, who are like, if we're just nasty enough to them, they're going to start behaving correctly, you know. And it's just not the case, you know. Like the way it's carrots and sticks, right? The carrots get you, you know. You need the sticks, but the carrot, the carrots are the actually the the special sauce that gets you to good behavior. You know, parents know this too. You can't only punish children into, it's part of it, but you can't only punish children into knowing what to do with themselves in a family situation. You've got to give incentives too. And it's the same in international affairs. So many human things are the same thing, you know, in the, and you know, this idea that we just have to be nasty, nasty, nasty to get what we want in the world is, 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 is the same thing in human relationships. So back to the Houthis, um, they, as you said, they're here to stay. They're resilient as all heck. Um, like often in human history, the strongest military, but also with discipline, you know, discipline and tactics wins, and then they become the the, the local power. Um, and the soft people that don't fight uh, don't do as well. Um, and yet, um, you know, for a an army to become a nation. Right. It needs both to be tough, but it also needs to attract good people. And you mentioned a minute ago that the Houthis aren't popular. And this is going to be problematic for them because they're, you know, even though they're resilient as all heck, no one's really rushing to Sana to help, you know, the great, the great northern Yemen, Yemen Houthi revival. It's not happening. So they're going to have, even though they're, they're winning, they're going to have a heck of a time. Um, um, uh, making things better for people in Northern Yemen. And we should just mention at this point, uh, Yemen is often called and has been often called correctly in recent years, uh, although it's being su su supplanted by Gaza right now, the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world. Mm. Uh, we have um, pretty much a quarter of the population starving and another half of the population very food insecure. Um, and... Um, uh, a lot of people die from curable diseases in Yemen. Uh, it's really the poorest nation in the Arab world and rivals this really super poor Sahel countries off to the west of it. Um, and so that's another problem because people often, uh, people in Congress and people in the United States often criticize the Americans. You know, why are you dealing with the Taliban? Why are you dealing with Hamas? Why are you dealing with um, the Houthis? And our answer is because people are dying of starvation there and the world community has uh, an obligation to feed people and save people from health problems in areas where they have badass governments, because that's what the international community does. Like it distributes food, you know, and, and to distribute food um, in areas governed by asshole nations, you have to talk to the assholes. Like it's just part right, of that's what right. you do. That's the humanitarian side of it. And, um, and, you know, this idea that somehow if we just stop dealing with bad actors in the world, you know, the world would be a better place. Uh, uh, misunderstands that we now have more refugees in the world than ever before. We have more starving people in many of the worlds than has ever been seen. And we have a series of humanitarian, uh, or let's say a strings of humanitarian catastrophes going around uh, in which, um, let's say, terrorist and autocratic states are going to be have to drag kicking and screaming into, into helping their own populations. And it's you know, I often say the, the United States is damned if they do, damned if they don't in international affairs. If they don't do stuff, they're an arrogant, rich country that doesn't care. And if they do do stuff, they're meddling and making it worse, you know, and the Americans often have to just 
take it on the chin and say, we're going to go feed these people. And I don't really care what you think about whether we deal with the Houthis or the Hamas or, or, or the Taliban. There's, you know, 10 million people starving. The food's got to go in. No, I think for the most part, you know, the U.S. tries to do things with good intentions. Um, yeah. And it, you're right. There's no, you're never going to get credit. There's always going to be some sort of catastrophe that wasn't anticipated. Um, that's a very, yeah. you can't have your un, cake and un, eat it too. Unintended outcomes. And, and yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, we, we certainly can't impose our worldview. Uh, we can place expectations on adherence to certain values and qualities and norms and yep. um, things that we all sort of share at a humanitarian level. But this idea that we can sort of impose, right, our, our will upon other countries or um, project sort of democracy as the sole solution to um, peace and, and prosperity um, yep. is one that was challenged very early on in the, in the 2000s, right? And I think we've grown out of that sort of idea and are more focused on pragmatic uh, decision-making when it comes to international relations, foreign policy. Um, I think, you know, the Biden administration has really propped itself up upon this, this concept of autocracy versus democracy, um, but it's so readily challenged, I think, um, in, in today's world and the challenges that we're facing today. So there's some hard decisions, I think, ahead um, as to how we deal with these concepts, how we deal with these challenges, um, sort of acceptance of certain groups. Uh, but I think overcoming those ideological challenges is really the, the root of finding long-term peaceful solutions to what we're facing today. So drilling down a little on what we're facing in the Red Sea, um, geographically, I think of sort of a long balloon with twists at the end. And so one twist is the Suez Canal and the other twist is the Babylon Strait, but it's very narrow. Yep. And we have hundreds of ships heading south around the Cape of Good Hope because of what's going on. Uh, Egypt's lost 40% of its shipping um, revenue and ships uh, because of what's going on. So this is an Arab country, North Yemen, uh, trashing another con uh, Arab country's economy, hardly a blood brotherly act. Um, but uh, since the Houthis ostensibly to support Gaza started attacking international shipping and to getting to another point you made, started by saying we're going to hit basically only ships bringing products in and out of Israel. And that quickly morphed into any ship with any sort of Israeli connection to any ship with any American or British connection to any ship in, in certain circumstances where they just fire randomly and hit a Russian tank or, or a Moroccan ship headed to India, you know? And so um, all maritime interests that deal with Red Sea shipping have had to take actions. Um, they're either uh, sending the ships around the other way, which adds 22 days and huge costs, or they're taking risk with, higher insurance costs to send it through the um, the Red Sea. Um, at one point, the oil and gas stuff seemed not to be hit, so a lot of that wasn't going through. That's shifted a little bit. Um, I talked to some shipping companies. Uh, those that choose to, to take the risk and send it through the Red Sea, sometimes they have time-sensitive cargoes like foodstuffs, uh, whereas other uh, ships with their flammable stuff, they absolutely can't go because you get a lot of explosions, you know, when they, right. when they hit the 
So that, that so there's all these considerations about what's your cargo, what's your risk tolerance, what are the insurance companies charging you, what are the you know all these different things um, go into the consideration, and then um, you know more about this. So you might want to say a word on it under international shipping, and even in the Red Sea, the bigger risk is not piracy or drone attacks. It's it's ships hitting each other, and because ships hitting each other is the biggest risk, they have these. Um, signals going on all the time so that everybody knows where everybody is and they're not going to run into each other. And that's what the Houthis are using to figure out who's who and then hit, hit them for the right reason or the wrong reason or or hit, be confused about it. And then, um, uh, so what's happening is the convoys are being protected by an American-led coalition of roughly 24 countries, uh, roughly 14 of which are, or 12 are saying who they are, and the other ones are acting without, you know, because they don't want to be seen as going out against the, the brother Palestinians, but they're they're participating in this coalition. Um, now, as you can say a lot too, you and I both know that Navy-wise, it's basically the British and the Americans that really matter, you know, in this sort of general world, although the French, Spanish, and Italians are the next tier. Uh, those two countries have chosen not to participate because um, they have large Muslim populations and, you know, don't want to be seen as, uh, although they may, those three may be among the 10 that are participating without, <laughs> without saying they're participating. I know the French aren't, but I'm not sure about the other two. Uh, but basically what's going on here is um, uh, the Americans are starting to have to defend, you know, all of international commerce uh, and most developing countries and sort of what you may call the old East Bloc, the China, the Russians are saying that um, uh, that the Americans are acting in an imperialist way and they're just doing to defend Israeli interests and uh, the American is, you know, an empire with bases all around the world, you know, the, you know, the, the dealio. But every country of the world's goods and shipping are being defended right now by the Americans. Right, right. And, and anyone involved in commerce knows that the Americans are doing the right thing and they're setting a precedent uh, that, 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 that terrorist and um, uh, ruthless states need to understand that, uh, you know, we can't live in a world where anyone for any random reason can stop the the world from trading and as you know and can say more about uh, maritime is is the cheapest and most environmentally friendly way to get goods you know as opposed to air and land and whatever the other options are um and so we're really talking about a defense of the sort of future of global commerce as we know it um and uh and this will be an issue long after gas is over um and it, it's it's really in our minds, and I think correctly disconnected from Gaza, other than people trying to make it out to be connected to Gaza, but it really isn't. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts based on what yeah, I just I, said. But I think started to get into some of the details. There's a number of significant of, things yeah. to tail off of that. Um, I think first is to acknowledge that really globalization was a result of a U.S.-led global maritime sector. Um, yeah. U.S. investment, U.S. creation of rules and regulations that really led to the, the liberalization of shipping um, across all countries. That's what's allowed for our interconnected world, um, interconnected trade, globalization right there, right? So the U.S. really we can think as being the main provider, the main provocateur of that concept. And so there's really this responsibility, frankly, for the United States to uphold and defend those principles. Um, 
let's not forget that we sort of, we are, in fact, um, a large economy as a result of that globalization and that trade that we created. And we are dependent upon that globalization, this international shipping to supply goods to our country. We're the largest economy in the world. We depend upon 80% of our goods come from overseas. We depend yep. upon ships to bring that here. And, and so this, and this just, just in case there's any MAGA people here or, you know, sort of far left wing anti-global commerce people, um, uh, we win economically from the global system. You know, that trade right. benefit really, enormously, yeah, really enormously. benefits us. There's and it's been no studied ad nauseum, but just again, to state it, just because there's been economic dislocation in the Midwest and other parts of the world, it's not because of global trade, right? It's because of some unfair practices by countries at certain times and, and the fact that the Americans are shifting. So for example, you know, there won't be jobs in West Virginia coal company, but there's more jobs in North Dakota with fracking. And, you know, there's constant shifting going on where yeah. Americans have to move to where the jobs are and there are under globalization, there are always more jobs being created than jobs being lost, but that doesn't make the people who are losing jobs happy. Right. And so I think yeah. really breaking it down, we rely upon the United States Navy to really serve as the guarantor, the defender of freedom of navigation, which allows for this global commerce. And so that's really being put to the test right now. Um, the U.S. has not really needed help from other countries, for the most part, to uphold these principles. And so we're almost at this, this point similar to where we were when the Trump administration first came in and challenged the lack of contribution from European countries towards NATO and their defense spending. Well, we're kind of at a similar point here where the United States is going to have to say, hey, guys. We created this system. We're not the only ones to benefit. We really need you to step it up and invest in your navies um, because the world grows by the day. It becomes more in interconnected by the day. Uh, and so we have all these new things opening up in the Arctic as well. We are potentially moving into a world where we're going to have deep sea mining and there's going to be a whole host of issues that come with that, with, with mineral rights and resource rights upon international oceans. And so, yeah, the U.S. really needs to stand up and say, hey, we've been, we've been bearing the brunt of this responsibility and the, investing heavily in the resources to provide for this. Um, I think it's, it's time that we sit down and have a consideration for moving forward. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Global Report. Next week, we will discuss further implications of the Red Sea crisis and broader challenges to international shipping.